0: This is Novel Marketing, the show for novelists who aren't necessarily fond of marketing, but still want to become best-selling authors. Episode 173. I am James L. Rubart, but you can call me Jim. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr. And in this episode, we're going to talk about developing a value proposition for your book. And... I guess what we're doing here, Thomas, is we are going back to Marketing 101. Yes, that's right. This is another Marketing 101
1: episode. We like to do these about once a quarter or so where we go back to the fundamentals and we get to hear Jim's metaphor from the sports team about them doing the fundamentals over and over again (laughs) and uh, how important that is. If you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard us talk about how important the basics are. And you know our last episode was super advanced, right? Split testing is probably more advanced for most authors. This is something every author needs to do uh, to sell more books, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. And this is straight out of the Marketing 101 textbook that we use <laughs> when we put together our Marketing 101 episodes.
0: Yeah, it's, it's John Wooden. It's fundamentals. It's going back to these things. And Thomas and I were talking about this, how we teach this stuff and yet we will hear a fundamental that we haven't heard in a while and we'll go, oh my gosh, we have not applied that or we haven't applied it as thoroughly as we can. We're always refining, always polishing. So I guess our feeling is if if we need to go back to those fundamentals, you guys probably do too.
1: So Jim, what is a value proposition?
0: So, you know, there's technical definitions, Thomas, but I think real simply, I would say a value proposition is the reason a reader should buy your book. Thoughts from you?
1: Yeah, I think that's good. And a good value proposition will resonate with your readers. When they hear it, they sit up and say, yes, that's for me. Or no, I'm not interested in that. Uh, It's a a divisive thing and and a good one very quickly will sort the wheat from the chaff. Now, we should say that uh, there's a lot of confusion about value proposition. It's not a tagline. Right? Like, it's not Brandolin Collins seatbelt suspense. That's not a value proposition per se because it doesn't really uh, tell you, uh, you know, what the value is, what the benefit is. Uh, it tells you about who Brandolin is. And that's not what a value proposition is. A value proposition is what's the benefit for the reader. It's not to say taglines are bad. We have episodes on taglines. Not to say taglines are good either. We have episodes on taglines. (laughs) We have both of those. But just to say a value proposition is not a tagline. And it's also not a log line. Like, Jim, what's a log line for your book, Rooms?
0: Well, one of the logs lines, for example, I could say rooms is the shack meets it's a wonderful life. And that's maybe intriguing. That might make you say, Ooh, I need to find out more about that. But that is not a value proposition. And a high concept is not value proposition either. And and, and again, people think, Ooh, I come up with this really high concept idea and, and that's my value proposition. That's what I'm giving to the reader. For example, rooms, my high concept for rooms is what essentially, what would you find if you walked into the rooms of your own soul? Again, that might make you go, well, that sounds intriguing, but that is not what Thomas and I are talking about when we say value proposition or the reason a reader would want to pick up the book.
1: And you may be wondering, okay, why do I need a value proposition? This seems like a lot of extra work. And the reason is, is that the more concisely you can communicate the benefit of your book, the more concisely your readers will be able to communicate it to your future readers. <laughs> so the the more uh, core this message is, the more simple this message is, the faster and more powerfully it will spread. And if you can find that core seed of the idea of the benefit. To your readers. That is what will grow into a powerful fruit tree that plants more seeds, that plants more fruit trees. So if you can get this right, this may be the thing that separates you between thousands of uh, readers and hundreds of thousands of readers, because a good viral value proposition will spread like
0: crazy. Let's give you an example. When I was on the air uh, for a radio station, my program director would always tell uh, the air talent, create a word picture, create a word, word picture in the listener's minds. And so you, if Thomas and I are selling a diet pill, we're going to say this diet pill will help you lose 20 pounds Instantly, okay, that's good, but then you take it to the next level and you say, and you will look fantastic on the cruise you're going to be taking in April. So now it's like I'm imagining myself looking slim, I'm looking good on this cruise, I'm wearing my bathing suit. So at this point, oh, okay, now I've got a real reason to buy that diet pill because the end result is something I desire. greatly.
1: That's right. And so, I think without any further ado, we should jump into it. And let's what we're going to do is we're going to give you some questions to develop your value proposition. And this is a value proposition on a book by book basis. Now, once you do your first book, if you have multiple books, it'll be a lot easier to do your subsequent books. And your subsequent books may have the same or similar value proposition. That's okay. This doesn't have to be unique per se, but it has to be uh, true. Like, you need to promise something that your book actually delivers, and it needs to resonate. <laughs> it needs to resonate in your target reader so that when they hear that value proposition, they're like, yes, this is what I want. And uh, so the first question is Who am I writing
0: for? Your book can't resonate with everyone. What? You can't? No, no, no. Thomas, I, I, my book is for everybody. <laughs> And we hear that a lot. Right. My book is for everybody. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So often.
1: Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, you know, everyone would want to read my book. You know, my book is for Christians or my book is for women. It's like, no, that's too broad. Right. (laughs) There's lots of different kinds of women. Let's take two women. One is in a lot of debt and the other one has one hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Okay. If you write a book about how to get out of debt and like how to manage your money and how to do budgets, that is not going to resonate with both of those women. Right. One of them is like, yes, this is what I need. And the other one is like, no, I'm more interested in a book about how to invest my money. How do I get a return on my money? And of course, it's even more true with fiction. Right. The kinds of people who are reading science fiction are not also reading Amish typically. Uh, that's a different reader. What's going to resonate with one kind of reader is not going to resonate with another kind of reader.
0: Uh, well, another way to think about this, to wrap your mind around it is think about movies, Uh, a movie about world war two is very different than a movie about romance. So you already in your mind picture, well, probably there's going to be more guys that are interested in the World War II movie and less guys interested in the romance movie. So we've already narrowed it down. What Thomas is saying is we need to get very specific. Who exactly is this reader? So we'll start with that. And then the second question, Thomas, is. What pain do they feel? Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so as you identify your core audience and you get to know them, uh, the pain that your book addresses is very important because if you can satisfy uh, or relieve this pain, uh, they will flock to your book. And I'm not just talking about nonfiction here. So let's talk about uh, older women, right? Women like 65 plus. Uh, For them, one of their biggest like psychic pains, is this thing called future shock. It's like culture shock, but you're staying in the same culture, but it's changed around you. And that's very difficult to navigate. Things that were acceptable and encouraged when they were children are now evil and vilified as they're um, adults and vice versa. And culture is very changing and they don't know what the rules are. It's very exhausting. That's the pain that they feel. So what is what alleviates that pain? What you know, how can you help somebody who is exhausted by change feel less pain? You take them to a world where things never change, a.k.a. Amish, right? <laughs> what, what is the one community where nothing ever changes? You know, the war world goes to war. The Amish don't even notice because they're exempt from the draft. Uh, there's a huge recession. The Amish don't notice because their economy is completely insulated. And a lot of people are scratching their heads and like, why is Amish so popular as a category right now? And it's because of this psychic pain. That this specific group of people, and I'm not saying Amish is just for people over 65, I'm saying that that's the group that feels that pain more strongly. Anyone who feels the psychic pain of change may find Amish books appealing, whether it's Amish written, you know, about Amish 500 or 100 years ago or Amish... Uh, today, uh, you know, that psychic pain is alleviated. Now, if you're like somebody like me, who's a tech person, who's like, yay, bring on the change, right? <laughs> that is not going to be a psychic pain that I feel, or at least not as strongly, right? I don't feel culture shock. Maybe I will when I'm older, but right now, you know, the, I, I have less life experience to, you know, use as a baseline for for culture. And so that is not something that resonates with me uh, and with other kind of younger readers. Uh, So this is why that first question is so important. Uh, Who am I writing for? Because different communities have different pains, different uh, psychological pains, and they're looking for relief in different ways. And if your audience is so broad that you don't know what their pain is, how can your book be the solution to that pain?
0: The next question that we want to give you guys is just as critical as the pain question because if you can nail this down then suddenly your target gets very clear and that is how does your book make your readers feel the primary benefit for most fiction books is how they make readers feel while they read them is your book going to make them calm is your book going to make them excited is your book going to make them feel superior? Is your book going to scare them, right? Horror movies, it's very clear who, what they want to do. They want to scare their viewers. And there are some people, I'm not among them, so I don't get this. But there's some people that go, scare me. I really want you to scare me. And and so that's what the horror, um, horror genre goes after. And so you need to figure out what the feeling is that your books deliver. And you might not know this is where it would behoove you to talk to some of your readers and say, how How would you describe it? How did this make you feel? Oh, the book thrilled me really? Yes, it was thrilling, and you start to see this pattern. This is where some market research research could really help you and by market research, we mean
1: talking to readers. We don't mean like spreadsheets necessarily or anything complicated. We're like get out into the real world, find a reader, buy them coffee, and ask them questions and you know, why is it that I like fantasy books so much and science fiction so much as I think about it? I'm like, well, you know, I do a lot of scary things in my life. I'm, I'm putting myself out there. I'm starting businesses and creating podcasts. And failure is always right there. And one of the things that I love about uh, fantasy especially is that the characters in fantasy books are typically doing incredibly scary things. And they're incredibly courageous, right? You have Frodo walking through, you know, Mordor with the ring as they, you know, Goblins are roaming around him and the you know Yurikai are chasing him and there's monsters and dragons in the air, you know, and he's he's walking through that scary thing and he is, you know, being courageous as he does that. The idea of a team working together to defeat a monster. I love that. I love that feeling of like, yes, Um, You know, monsters can be defeated, right? The C.S. Lewis quote is like, fantasy is true, not that it says that monsters are real or dragons are real, but it is true in that it says that dragons can be defeated. And that is what I'm wanting. That's the payoff at the end. That at the end of the book, the great evil villain gets defeated. The vampires get stakes through their hearts. The zombies get shot in the face or whatever. (laughs) Uh, For other people, that's not what they're wanting, right? And, And that doesn't resonate with them. That feeling of like, I want to feel courageous isn't uh, what they're looking for in their book. You know, if they're feeling exhausted, maybe they're wanting a calm, relaxing read where the stakes aren't very high, where, you know, there's a thief hiding in the buggy and they want to know, you know, is can they catch him before he steals too much from the town, right? That's very different. The last fantasy series I read was actually the uh, Void Wraith trilogy by Chris Fox, a, a friend of the show. And the stakes were literally... The existence of life in the galaxy. <laughs> like, it wasn't life on Earth. It was life across the entire galaxy. I mean, the stakes were very, very high uh, by the end of, of the trilogy. And I'm like, yes, please and thank you. Give me more of that kind of book. Uh, now, I want to real quick talk about making people feel superior, right? Like, this uh, often applies to nonfiction. Uh, If I'm a a Republican reading a book about how great Republicans are and how terrible Democrats are, or vice versa, I'm a Democrat, and I'm reading a book about how great Democrats are and how terrible Republicans are, uh, that book is about making me feel good about what I already believe. A lot of people are like, I am going to write a book, and it's going to tell the people on the other side of the aisle how wrong they are. (laughs) It's like, no one wants to read a book to feel stupid. All right? Like a y'all are wrong Book it's not going to sell very well. And often, <laughs> nonfiction authors are like, "Why is no one buying my book?" It's like your book makes people feel like idiots. Your book makes people feel like fools, and no one wants to feel that way, and so no one's going to buy that. That's not a good value proposition. You know, my book will help you realize how wrong you've been your whole life <laughs> yeah. about your very core beliefs. That's like mm, pass. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to read that kind of book. Uh, the next question uh, you'll want to ask to help you as you craft this value statement is, what problem am I solving for my readers? And I think this is most helpful for nonfiction. Uh, but Jim, uh, w- what are your thoughts on this question? How, does, how do readers use this question?
0: Yeah, I think, as Thomas said, this is more applicable to nonfiction because you can very specifically show... I'm going to help you establish great habits that are going to change your life for the positive. But it also applies in fiction. And and you're not going to present it in ad copy. This is the problem I'm solving for you. But for you to understand the problem that you're solving is going to help you target the correct readers with this. For example, maybe this book helps people for the first time in their lives take that risk and step into an adventure that they've always wanted to, but they never had the courage to do so. That might be the problem that you're solving. And you might have people coming back to you and going, oh my gosh, you know, I always wanted to travel and I never did. And after reading your book, you know, just something about it inspired me to travel or inspired me to open up that restaurant or inspired me to start playing guitar, whatever it is. You can drill down and find these themes. You're going to have themes in your book, whether you set out, to write about a theme or not, there is going to be a theme in your book. And, and if you drill down into that theme and you start getting feedback again, from talking to readers, you'll realize, oh my goodness, I solved this problem for my readers.
1: Uh, a couple of other questions to help you very briefly, and then we'll give you some examples. Uh, one is, and we've kind of been alluding to this question all throughout, but what is, uh, how does your book benefit readers? You know, so this is the core benefit. But the follow-on question to this is why are those benefits important or why is that benefit important? And uh, this is the classic marketing example of people don't buy a lawnmower, they buy a beautiful yard, <laughs> right? Like you want to kind of go and ask that why a few more times and get that core why behind the why. Like I feel like the example that I shared with why I read uh, fantasy is... Is, is like five whys deep, right? That goes to like the very core of who I am as a person and the very core of why these books resonate with me. And this uh, this act of asking why over and over again, kind of like a two-year-old, you know, you give the two-year-old an answer and then they ask why about that and they keep going why deeper and deeper. Uh, there's some interesting truths that you can find about yourself and about your writing when you do that with yourself. And you're like, why is that important? Why is that important? Till so you get to the core why, I feel afraid, I feel exhausted, I feel overwhelmed by societal change around me. And then you've got your value proposition. (laughs) Once you know your reader to that level, man, that is a powerful place to be and helps all of your marketing after that.
0: Final question we want you guys to ask is, how is my book different from other similar books? We've got all these different types of mousetraps. How is my mousetrap just a little bit different than all the other ones out there. Thomas? Yeah,
1: this is um, in some ways a more of a positioning statement than a value statement. So don't worry too much about this uh, if you don't have a clear answer, but you will need to answer this question for your marketing, right? Why should I buy this book instead of the book that's already out there on the market? And I think this is really important question to ask as you're writing the book. Uh, I was talking with an author, and uh, she's like, yeah, my books are really similar to this other series of books that inspired me. And I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> it's like if, if your books are similar to these, why would people read your books? But then I looked them up and they were published in 1982 and they were out of print. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> so now I feel better about your book, right? That, that, you know, you're not competing with these other books, uh, partly because they're no longer in print, right? The only copies you can buy are used and they're beat up library copies. Uh, that's a better place uh, to be. But uh, you know, it just asks that question, how is my book different? What makes it special? Um, and it doesn't have to be superior, right? Like your answer here doesn't have to be, it's better written. I use you know better usage of the English language. That's not the answer we're necessarily looking for. It's more of how is it better for your readers? How does it deliver on the promises that it makes?
0: And going back to Thomas, just for a second, let's camp on this just for a moment. And that Thomas said, figure this out while you're writing the book. I, I, have to point that out or or highlight that because once it's done, it's usually too late and somebody will come out with, well, my book is about this gal who goes back in time and falls in love with a English man. Well, okay. That was done with a Scottish man with the Outlander series. So that's not distinct enough. That's going to be seen as a copycat. So you can, you can write in the same genre. You can have even a similar story, but there's got to be something that's different and there's a classic uh, story from marketing 101 where uh you ask the question hey folks who was the first person to fly across the atlantic solo in an airplane and everyone says oh it's charles lindbergh and then you ask well who was number two and everyone goes i have no idea even though this pilot flew across the atlantic faster and he used less fuel so he clearly is a better product and yet we remember lindbergh um and then you ask the question uh well, who was number three to fly across the Atlantic solo in an airplane? And everybody goes, well, I don't know number two, Bert Hinkler, by the way. How in the world am I going to know number three? Well, everyone has heard about Amelia Earhart. So she wrote, quote, the same book, but she was the first woman, and so she stands out. So if you're writing in a genre with similar products, which you probably are, you have to find that Amelia Earhart in your book. And sometimes that comes in in the writing of the book.
1: And you don't want to be too different, I will say. Like if you're completely out of left field, people won't want to read your book. So don't feel like you have to like reinvent the wheel. You just need to explain my wheel is blue (laughs) and all the other wheels are black or whatever that difference is.
0: The wheel's never been blue before, but it's still a wheel. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: All right. So some uh, examples, Uh, we kind of created um, value propositions for a couple of our books. And then our featured patron uh, uh, for today is also getting we created a value proposition for her book. Just, you know, as a way of saying thank you to our patrons uh, who we love very much. Uh, So uh, I'll give the example of mine and then Jim uh, will give his. Courtship in Crisis explains where the singleness epidemic came from and what to do uh, to end it. If you're single and want to be married, this book will help you understand why finding a spouse is so hard and how to make it easier.
0: And that's a nonfiction book. I did one for my first novel, which obviously is fiction. And what we created for that is rooms will show you how to find freedom from your fears and step into your destiny. And we would like to invite you
1: to share the value proposition for one of your books in the Facebook group. So underneath this episode for the official discussion, go ahead and post what uh, your value proposition is. And uh, who knows, you may get some feedback on ways of making it better. And it's an opportunity to talk about your book in our Facebook group. So feel free to check that out. You can find links to that at novelmarketing.com.
0: And Thomas, um, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to talk you into it. There are people, listeners, that are still not part of our Facebook group.
1: What? No, I'm pretty sure they've all joined by now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you are not a member of the group, it's very easy. It's free. We would love to have you join us there.
1: Our featured patron is uh, *The Seven Deadly Friendships* by Mary Demuth. Do you have a friendship where there's uh, something wrong, but you don't uh, can't put your finger on what it is? Toxic friendships happen to everyone, but we seldom identify the underlying issues. So here is the value proposition that I created for this book. Uh, so this is the unofficial value proposition, and it is: this book will help you find better friends and be a better friend yourself. And that, of course, is by uh, our
0: friend Mary Demuth. And we will have links in the show notes if you want to go and pick up a copy of the book. Really, the people who have read that book so far have had really powerful reactions, really loved it. So check that
1: out. And our sponsor today is the Book Launch Blueprint uh, Season 2. So a lot of you... Uh, have been asking about how do I get the book launch blueprint? This is a step-by-step guide on how to launch a book. We go through it as a cohort. So uh, Jim and I teach it along with Mary DeMuth, actually, who wrote Seven Deadly Friendships, who's launched over 30 books. And we go through the entire process. And at the end, you have a customized book launch blueprint for your book. Um, Registration is very limited in terms of time. uh, And once it closes, it closes. Uh, So we do encourage you to check that out. We have a link at novelmarketing.com and at booklaunch.funds. This is the official announcement that the
0: gates have been
1: opened first come, first serve. Uh, We hope to see you there.
0: Uh, So so Thomas, um, three months old. Is that right? Mercy is,
1: is she at about three months now? That's right. So just yesterday, she turned three months old. It's hard to imagine uh, that my little baby girl is now three months old. Uh, we're now measuring it in months instead of in weeks. Uh, so I feel like this is a, a big milestone. And she is, as the kids would say, totes adorbs. She's totally adorable. Uh, I am very thankful to have her in my life. She's, she's so happy. <laughs> so she's When I come downstairs from the office, you know, she's so happy to see me. She's, she's very smiley. And uh, I'm just so thankful to be a father and to have this little one uh, in my life.
0: Oh, without question, and we had our mastermind retreat. You, you get—we've talked about mastermind groups and forming those, which we would encourage you to do. Um, we had our annual mastermind retreat this past weekend, and Margaret and Mercy came, and I can attest to the fact that oh my gosh, not only is this baby gorgeous, but she is happy, happy, happy. It was really fun to see you guys interacting with her and give us a chance. I haven't held a belly- baby for a long time. That was fun.
1: And uh, there may be baby photos from time to time in the Facebook group. So heads up on that. <laughs> if you, uh, you've been duly warned, I can't help myself. <laughs> Although I don't ask too many. But anyway, we hope this uh, Marketing 101 session of the Novel Marketing Podcast has been helpful to you. Uh, I am Thomas Umstadt Jr., joined by James L. Rubart, bestselling author on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.